Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. everyone and welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan and today we're looking at minutes 21 to 28 which begin with M telling Bond he's booked on the 830 plane to Istanbul and end in the office of Karim Bey who tells Bond that something smells. In between, Bond gets a very special briefcase from Q, flirts with Money Penny, arrives in Istanbul to be shadowed by Red Grant, and meets his contact, the charming Ali Karimbe. And our guest today is author, screenwriter, producer, and director Bruce Civilly. Author, along with John Cork, of James Bond, The Legacy, that beautiful, big, gold coffee table book. And writer-director of those extraordinary Bond documentaries narrated by Patrick McNee, which you will find on DVD and Blu-ray. But his expertise does not end with 007. He's also the author of Billion Dollar Batman, Superman on Film, Television, Radio, and Broadway, the Dracula FAQ, and Booze, Bullets, and Broads, the story of Matt Helm, Spy of the Mad Men era. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your guys' podcast. You know, I just, I've just i just been bugging John about the fact that I just finally watched all of the Matt Helm movies as a grown-up. Oh, my God. Uh, one night at a time, just I did. I went Monday through Thursday with Matt Helm, and uh, it was really a strange experience. You know, John Court, uh, when I was doing the, 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 the little uh, ebook there for uh, Amazon, I think he summed it up when he said the Matt Helm movies are kind of like uh, in the 70s when your grandparents had a hippie party and they all dressed up like hippies and they put on hip, you know, hippie music. That's kind of what the, the Matt Helm movies are like. It's kind of aging Dean Martin trying to be James Bond, but he's, you know, he's seems pretty soused throughout the films and is only doing one take of anything and you know it's a and james gregory seems pretty soused through them too i think it was just a big booze party and occasionally they'd shoot a scene from a movie you know yeah no kidding and they're uh, really they're really strangely tone deaf uh oh to the, to... even for the time i think they were politically incorrect you know <laughs> but the interesting thing the reason i wrote that little um uh, ebook is because you know there are some crossovers between Matt Helm and James Bond, and it begins with the fact that the producer of the Helm movies had been partners with Cubby Broccoli in Warwick Pictures in the 1950s, and they still were sharing a partner's desk uh, in London after they'd split up and and Cubby's having success with the James Bond movies. So there's um, Irving Allen watching Cubby making all this money from James Bond, and he's thinking, I want some of that, you know, so he starts his own series. Yeah, and I even noticed that there were some bits that wind up in later Bond films that it's almost like Tom Mankiewicz when he began, you know, writing those films that were more parody than not, mm -hmm. that there were some Matt Helm holdover things that seemed to find their way. I'm not saying he, he lifted them, I'm just saying that, you go in a certain direction when you're starting to kind of poke fun at the whole thing. Yeah, and apparently devices that will unzip women's dresses were very popular back then. 
So exactly, I've got one. I've got one here, <laughs> and it's really great. Oh, good. I have to ask you before we get into these minutes and other things to talk a little bit about the Eon archives because I have this image of some amazing high tech thing with multiple sliding doors and all sorts of buttons that you have to push to get access to, which I know isn't true, but what are the Eon archives like and what was it like working in them? It's a little less like that. And depending on which ones you're going to, a little more like the final scene of Citizen Kane. Um, (laughs) I mean, Eon has production offices in London on Piccadilly. And oddly enough, during the Dracula FAQ book, I was reading an article that um, someone had written where going through the novel Dracula, they were trying to figure out from all the clues given in that where Dracula's apartment in London would have been. And the address they give is the exact address of Eon Productions in London. <laughs> so, wow. So it, it all comes together. You know, everything's interconnected. Um, but uh, most, most of the archives I was going through for the DVDs, it was uh, a lot of um, what they call linen books, where they will take the proof sheets from all the still photographs taken on set and um, paste them to a, a, a page of linen and then bind them all in a book. You know? So I was doing a lot of scanning of images from the linen books for the films. Some of that I did at MGM here in uh, Los Angeles and some I did... In, uh, in London, but they also had clipping files, which were really vital to us during the DVDs. So that's how we found out the story from, from Russia with Love of uh, the car accident with Daniela Bianchi. You know, and jo- John and I had never heard that before, but here were several articles about it, you know. So, so that was uh, invaluable to us. And then as, as we progressed working on those, uh, uh, went out one day, I think when we got to the uh, Honor Majesty Secret Service documentary, went out to one of their warehouses, which I'm sworn to secrecy about where it is. Uh, but it you know, it looks like just a big kind of storage area, and you go in, and it's just boxes and crates and various props and things all on shelves, you know. So, uh, it, you know, for, for someone like me, it's like I'm a kid in a candy store again, you know. But, but then yeah, again... So are the boxes filled with, like, properties and props and... and, and- all sorts of artifacts, physical artifacts from the films? Not so much physical artifacts. There's some of that, because uh, Eon does have quite a store of that. Some of it they have in their offices in London. Um, I think they just finished uh, World is Not Enough around that time. So when I went over there, they had, you know, in the office about to go to the archives was uh, the, the, the uh, walking cane gun from World is Not Enough, um, Valentin's gun. So, you mm. know, so they're like, you want to hold it? And I'm like, uh, sure, but you know, you, it's it's that moment of you know I'm afraid I'm going to drop this or break it or you know so. Yeah, did you you guys did all those interviews though as well? Um, I'm just curious. Do you have any favorite moments from all those different people that you guys talked to? Well, I, I just have to say, uh, you know, doing we we were given carte blanche to go. One of the things that we got from the archives was all the interviews that had been done for past TV specials. Uh, so there was one of those that we mined pretty heavily. That was, uh, I think, the Elizabeth Hurley uh, hosted special. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of interviews were done for that that we had access to. And then we went back and did our own interviews. And um, at that time, Peter Hunt was still among us and living here in L.A. And he came in several times. He was he was just a really great guy, and I, I really miss Peter. You know, and and, uh, and a wonderful raconteur. Uh, and um, the other guy that I think was really fantastic was Peter Lamont, the production designer. 
uh, who didn't really come into the Bond films till Goldfinger, but Peter Lamont had a memory like an elephant. I mean, you could almost say, you know, well, when you were shooting on the 47th day of Goldfinger, what happened? And he could tell you, you know, so it's just amazing. Um, but, you know, a lot of fun. I was actually scanning images uh, at MGM one day from Dr. No and uh, seeing all these lovely pictures of, of Ursula Andress, the sunny writer, and then the phone rings and it's John and he's doing interviews all at another office at MGM says, you want to come meet Ursula Andress? I'm like, yes, sure. Wow. <laughs> so so it's kind of interesting to just be scanning photos of her and then go over and say hello. You know, we did an interview with Martine Beswick recently and she- Oh, she cool. was great. She was she was so much fun and had had some really wonderful stories about her career, both with Bond stuff and also with the with the Hammer films. The Hammer films. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I haven't met her, but I know people who who well, I know the guys who did the movie from a whisper to a scream that she's in, and uh, they have nothing but great things to say about her. Uh, I'll say one of one of getting sort of the hammer. This is kind of an aside here, but doing the bonds when we got to the third round of movies we were going to do, which was going to include a view to a kill, we thought, well, we can't have Patrick McNee narrating a film that he's also going to be interviewed in about the production, you know. So we were looking for someone else to get, and I said, well, how about Christopher Lee? Because I thought he was living in L.A. at the time, which he was. So I arranged a lunch. We all we all go. We have lunch. Me and the other two producers, John and, and David Naylor, have lunch with Christopher Lee. And he was very much like Patrick McNee, an actor who just is a great raconteur, very gregarious, outgoing. And I had read his biography before I went to this lunch and, uh, and brought it along to get autographed, by the way. Uh, and, I, and I said, you know, I read your biography and you say in there that you and Peter Cushing used to call each other every day and you would speak to each other in Warner Brothers cartoon voices because they love the Warner Brothers cartoons. And I said, I, I just can't imagine you speaking in a Warner Brothers cartoon voice. And he goes, great suffering succotash. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was it good? Was it a good great time? Was it a good? Oh, it was, it was perfect. Yeah. It was spot on. You know, <laughs> I mean, he was a great mimic. But then he told us that, uh, well, I, I, you know, when we told him what we were having to lunch, we said, well, I'd, I'd love to do it, but I'm about to go to Australia because they're making Lord of the Rings. It's my favorite book. I read it every year. And they're going to use special effects to make me this tall and special effects to make Elijah Wood this small. And, you know, so that's when I first heard that Lord of the Rings is being made. Wow. Who who wound up at, I can't remember, who wound up narrating The View to a Kill uh, document? We, we got we got a woman, uh, her last name is Lord, I'm, I should know this, uh, Marjorie Lord, I want to say, but I'm not sure. She was the voice of British Airways commercials. All right, very good. <laughs> so, yeah, so those, those last six documentaries we did had her narrating, and she did a wonderful job. So I know that you have a, particular fondness for from Russia with love uh, do you remember the first time you saw it I do I got introduced to the Bond films because I you know of, of that generation that was uh, just at the right age of becoming uh, you know pre-adolescence becoming a teenager when they hit ABC television in the 70s so I remember I think Goldfinger was the first one they broadcast and I watched that and of course the Aston Martin scene was just the best thing I'd ever seen um, and then they began showing the other Bond films. So the first time I saw it would have been on TV. And I have to admit, seeing From Russia With Love on television, I thought it was kind of boring. Yeah. Know? And then later on, when I came out to Los Angeles to, to go to college, 
At that time, there was still in L.A. what they called revival houses, which were theaters that just showed old movies. And very often on Friday nights and Saturdays, they would have double and triple features of James Bond films. And seeing From Russia With Love on the big screen in a theater without commercials was a revelation. And that's when I realized that, you know, seeing those films on the big screen for the first time, that certain of the movies like Diamonds Are Forever, you can throw commercials in there and it doesn't really affect them because they're so episodic anyway. And in some ways, it kind of improves the movie as opposed to seeing it in a theater where you go, eh, this doesn't quite all hold together. You yeah. know? But but with something like For Much Would Love, where it's pretty intricately plotted and presented and all that, you really need to see that without interruption. You know? yeah. so, so that's when it became my favorite Bond film. And, and I also think that one and Majesties are the ones that, for me, are closest to the Fleming source material. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I was reading uh, in your book, actually, about all of the scandals and spy scandals that were going on at the time that this film came out. And so I thought that was really interesting. You guys go into great detail about the different things that were happening in the news at the time that this movie premiered. And so it's it's it was it was really current feeling to audiences at the time. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, that was one of the kind of the thing we were doing with the book was trying to see how things that were happening in the actual world impacted the Bond films and then vice versa. Because uh, it's it's this kind of give and take between the films and things in real life where sometimes the films are almost predicting the kinds of you know, spyware and events that were going to happen in the future. Sometimes they were reacting to it. Well, do you want to just jump into these minutes? We'll just sort of start with, uh, with M's office. Sure. So I think this is the the same set from Dr. No. They haven't given it the makeover that I guess Ken Adam would give it when he comes in and can actually put real wood paneling on the on the flats and real leather on the door, right? Right. Well, I think also Dr. No had been successful, but it wasn't like the mega hit yet, you know. In fact, I think when it first, if I remember correctly, when it first opened in the US in some places it was on drive-in screens or double bills, you know. So yeah. So, but then you get from Russia with Love comes out, and I think that one was the most highest earning film in the UK for 1963 when it came out, um, and ended pretty well in the US. So that's the one that first kind of takes the, the the series to a different level financially. So after that, then they kind of opened up all the stops and put a lot of money into Goldfinger, and when that one came out, that's when Bond Mania hit. Big time, you know. So I think Goldfinger is the one where it's like, okay, these these look like they're going to have legs. Let's really pump up the production value. We were actually talking last week trying to figure out what the heck that was on M's desk. Do you have any guess for that? <laughs> that the gold thing? I don't. I'd have to look at it again to see. I mean, I know that, um, you know, the whole idea with, with M's office is since he's formerly a naval commander, pretty much everything in that office has something to do with the sea and nautical items and so on, like the paintings of the ships and what have you. Yeah. So, yeah. What do we make of this Bond line where he says, oh, well, what if I'm not to her liking when she sees me? He 100% knows he will be of her, <laughs> to her liking, correct? This is one of those, like, he's having him on a little bit, false modesty, and M's like, yeah, Bond, I think he'll be fine. <laughs> isn't he trying to work? Yeah, isn't I, he winding him up just a little bit with that line? Because Bond does not think for a second he won't be to her liking, does he? Well, there is 
throughout the film and, and in the scene just prior to that, the lesbian overtones with Rosa okay. Klepp. So maybe he's not sure of her orientation. Maybe that's what the line's about uh, in, in a real subtle, sly, early 1960s censor-approved way, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, uh, I think it's a fun line. I think Connery's delivery of it is spot on. And, and this, just rewatching this scene a few times now for this broadcast, uh, or these, these seven minutes. Um, I feel like in Dr. No, Connery is still a bit of a rough diamond. You know, I, I mean, it's, his dialogue in Dr. No very often to me seems like he's really rushing through it, you know. But what about the girl? Yeah. What about, blah, 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 blah. you know, it's this real yeah. rapid fire. And in this one, he seems much more assured, much more relaxed, much more at ease. And I think gives in this one, in Goldfinger, gives his best James Bond performances. Um, and, and also they've, they cleaned him up a bit. I mean, the thing that immediately stands out in that that scene with him is, you know, they've shaved his eyebrows. <laughs> you know, they yeah. they've groomed those a little bit. You know, and and uh, but you know, I think he looks looks his best and gives his best performances in this film in Goldfinger. Yeah, there's a playful quality to him in this that's that's not present in Doctor No. Yeah, yeah, there there certainly is, and. It may be, too, that just in terms of story, it's a better story and a better book to adapt from. Uh, and I know Dr. No was a little bit of a rushed affair because they had originally wanted to do Thunderball as the first one and then they encountered all the issues with that. Well, there, there's another factor, though, to this exchange that I didn't think about until just now. It doesn't really matter if she's if he's to her liking because they don't buy her story anyway. They don't buy any of this. I think it really. I think he's really just having him on. He's just he's he's going. It, I'm the young. Be. I'm the strapping young, handsome spy, and you're the old man behind the desk. And I'm pointing that out to you in a in snarky sort of way. Is what I think is happening. There, there is always a quality to the M Bond interactions where Bond is the obstreperous teenager and M's the adult who's got to say stop mm-hmm. that. Exactly. <laughs> you know, kind of keep him in line. So. And it's always, yeah, it always fuels, you know, there's that underlying, that subtext in those scenes that always fuels the scenes, even though they can often be very heavily expositional. They make sure to yeah. throw in a couple of moments where their dynamic is brought out, which actually kind of yeah. leads us to Q because, you know, we we got Boothroyd and Dr. No, and then we have this per- person's apparently supposed to be Boothroyd as well, but is... We come to know as Q for the rest of the, uh, or do they say? Didn't we decide we, they say his name? Somebody said they say his name again in a later film. I can't remember, but um, uh, in Spy Who Loved Me, right. he's called Boothroyd. That's yeah, right. but yes. but in this yeah. one, he's just the equipment officer from Q Branch right. is how he's introduced. But, uh, and of course, you know, for folks who don't know uh, the the acronym Q or Q Branch, it just stands for quartermaster. Mm-hmm. You know, which and in military parlance as the guy who's going to issue all your weapons so well it's hard for me to feel you know i watched this scene and so we're getting this is even more the proto q scene than the one in dr no right we're we're now with our actor who we're going to have for the next few decades and it's missing something though right like i can feel the missing and i think that they the missing element and i think that they did too after watching this because they go right into it they give them q and bond a little underlying subtext going forward right the bond is always messing about and grabbing things he shouldn't and here yeah that comes into play with the next Mm -hmm. one in goldfinger where it was to change in directors yeah you know where where guy hamilton 
gave um, Desmond Llewellyn that bit of direction of you don't like him because he always breaks your your gadgets. Yeah. And that changed the whole dynamic then between the way Bond and Q interacted from that point on. And it gave those scenes a, a more eventful feeling to me. You know, like this one really kind of falls flat in a way to me. Th this is just the facts, <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's know? like they go, okay, here's, here's that'll be all then. Thank you. And they leave. It's like, yeah. wait, nothing happened to that scene, <laughs> did it? Yep. Here's your briefcase. Here's what it does. Bye-bye. Sign exactly. off. Got to go to lunch. Right. You know. But what it does have is the fact that Bond seems to be genuinely amused by this yeah. thing. Like, he knows how, he's probably thinking, I'm never going to have to use this thing. But okay, I'm going to show you I know how to open and close it and not blow it up in anybody's face. Well, he actually says, I don't think there would be much, I'll have much use for this. But, um, you know, and and, Q's, and uh, M's like, well, it's standard issue. But there's a little funny story behind that uh, with Peter Hunt, where... Um, yeah, when they went to see the dailies for this scene that Peter Hunt had cut together, when it gets to the point where Bond's going to open the case himself and he turns the latches, Peter Hunt cut in the explosion of Doctor No's facility from Doctor from the first film. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it's like Bond opens the briefcase, boom. Yeah, so. But and the credits will roll, and that's it. That's your movie, folks. Well, that's exactly what he did. He didn't put up the credit roll right after that from Doctor No. So. <laughs> Um, which apparently everyone at the, the dailies was amused. Um, but that's another thing, again, just seeing Connery's performance as he's opening that briefcase. Bond does look a little genuinely worried that he might not do it correctly, you mm -hmm. know, and relieved when it goes like it should, <laughs> you know. So. I always noticed how Q says open normally and then Bond says open ordinarily. 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 Yeah. And I thought, is that even a word? I'm not even sure that's a word. But Wait, ordinarily? Connery said it, ordinarily? it is. is that what you're saying? Ordinarily, yes. Hmm. Ordinarily. Well, it's, it's ordinarily with a Scottish accent. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I had that. I had the kid's toy briefcase of that when, when I was a little kid. Well, I'm that, jealous. That had It, it had two spring-loaded throwing knives that came out. I mean, they were plastic. But, yeah. Um, I don't remember what else it had. I think it maybe had the sovereigns on a, you know, on a strip, but yeah. Were they chocolate was, was sovereigns cool. or like gelt? They on were a, not. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, you didn't get to eat. Speaking anything. of the sovereigns, yeah, I did do a little math if, if, for for a moment if we're, if we're interested. Uh, um, sure. So a, a gold sovereign weighs seven point three two ounces. I guess. Does that does that sound right? Now that I'm saying it, I'm like, wait, that's really heavy, isn't it? Maybe it is. No, that's about right. Gold is heavy. Um, which at the time priced at $35, or so we're doing dollars. I didn't do the conversion uh, to pounds. $35.23. So 50 of them comes up to, he has about 13 grand in that uh, briefcase. <laughs> Wow. Which makes it which really? makes it all the more surprising that, uh, yeah, and if anybody wants to correct me, I'm known... Go all the way back to my school days. I'm known to getting for getting math problems wrong, so I might have messed that up somewhere. But <laughs> you would think that when he said, oh, "I don't think I'll need this," there would at least be a remark about the sovereigns. Like, well, I could probably make use of this thirteen thousand dollars I have, but uh, uh, I'm assuming I'm wow. assuming that's uh, traced. You know, he's not going to be able to spend that without a lot of requisitions and receipts. But no wonder Red Grant wants wants the. Wants the money from the other briefcase. That's a lot yeah, of jack. Yeah, it is. He's... I mean, I don't know what thirteen thousand dollars then is now. I didn't do that conversion either, but that's a lot. It's 
probably like, it would have been less in pounds uh, would have been less than it is now because the conversion rates have gone the other way mm-hmm. back then it would have been probably seven thousand pounds or something right. you know but i noticed that desmond llewellyn has a, a mashed little finger He's got a blister under his finger, which I'd never noticed. Before. I saw that today too, rewatching it before I did the came on the broadcast here, and um, you know, it's one of the things I think is interesting when you know inserts like that, where we're just seeing someone's hands, are usually done at the end of production. There will be two or three days of just filming insert shots, and I think for Bond, they always get someone who's who's a really good hand model, who's immaculately manicured, and so on. But I'm sure those are Desmond's real oh, hands because yes. Desmond has kind of fat fingers, you know. Yeah. And and it's not just a mashed pinky, but there's also a little cut on one of the other fingers. And it's like, these are not well-manicured, <laughs> groomed hands here, you know. <laughs> so I feel like for Desmond Llewellyn, it was another day's paycheck to come in and do his inserts, you know. Whereas for Connery, it's like, well, it's cheaper for us to get the hand model, you know. See, now those inserts have taken on, because now it's become this thing on the, on the James Bonding podcast, is who pointed it out to me. I never noticed that his hands were the size they are until they... They bring it up all the time, and now it the inserts cut like the Seinfeld episode with the man hands when the woman has. Right. The, I mean, it literally makes me chuckle just a little bit just when they cut to these inserts because it's like, man, those hands are something. They are huge. Yeah, yeah. Here's a guy making really tiny, intricate <laughs> electronic devices, but he's got these really sausage fingers. Right. You know. So. <laughs> Incidentally, getting to the inserts, this is this will jump ahead, way ahead to another movie. But um, License to Kill, there's an insert of James Bond, um, I think, cutting the police tape to get into Felix's house where he discovers him dead. And Bond's hands in that insert belong to Michael G. Wilson, the producer. I think, so. isn't Michael G. Wilson make many, many cameos in different ways through the years? Starting a think well yeah he's supposedly in uh driving doubling for odd job driving the car in kentucky uh on the way to get the car crushed and um then he came became a member of the team beginning with spy who loved me and from that point on he's got cameos yeah. in all the films i was going to also point out that i guess desmond llewellyn had worked with um terence young before and so this one, one another one of those instances of Terrence Young sort of drawing on on previous relationships for for the Bond films. Yeah, and you know a lot of folks who were on the Bond crews were had worked on the Warwick Pictures that Cub, that uh, Cubby Broccoli had produced in London throughout the 1950s. So you know it's not just uh, Terrence Young, but also I think Ken Adam worked on one of the Warwick Pictures. Um, yeah. You know and. And I forget who all else, but, you know, quite quite a lot of the, the crew members were war veterans. Um, and I had looked this up also because I wanted to see if Bernard Lee had been in any of the Terrence Young pictures prior, but he wasn't. But, uh, yeah, Llewellyn was in um, a movie called They Were Not Divided, which Terrence Young directed in 1950. And, and I think he plays one of the tank drivers or something like that named 77 Jones. I just saw him in Cleopatra the other day. I was watching that, and he's in the Roman Senate. Y- yes, yes. I'd never spotted before. <laughs> and then what I didn't know about Desmond Well until I was researching for the podcast was there was a live TV version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1950 on BBC. And Llewellyn played... Mr. Hyde. Yeah, you would expect him to, to either play Dr. Jekyll or both roles. I'm assuming since it's live TV and they probably had kind of monsterish makeup, they can't do a transformation. Right. So, so they have to play Jekyll. 
Um, remember? I didn't write it down. Sorry, I'd have to look it up again. No, but, but look up Llewellyn's credits. You'll find I it. Will, you know? I will. And, and, I, and I guess Anthony Dawson was also in, in that film, um, They Were Not Divided. Right? Yes, he was. He was in, uh, I think, two or three of the Warwick pictures, yeah. And then, of course, have you ever seen that movie? Because I know Terrence Young was a tanker, so I would have thought there probably maybe there's some really interesting stuff. I have seen it, but it's been a long time. I mean, the Warwick pictures are pretty good, you know, and they were they had a lot of the elements that the Bond films had. They were usually sort of um, boys' own adventure type films, or you know, men in battle, men in exotic locations, um, you know. But always, but, al- always with an American actor like Victor Mature or Alan Ladd or something like, like that, and then the rest of the cast and crew are British because that's how they got the tax rebates. So. Right, right. It's funny when we were looking at this mashed finger nail in this insert. That's probably something that we wouldn't have spotted on the DVD or the, certainly not on the VHS, um, maybe not even in the theater when it's being projected. Is it possible to overscan these movies? Yes, and I'm I'm going to maybe get a little controversial here. Uh, John Cork and I, when they were doing the Lowry transfers where they scan them frame at a time and repair any scratches and so on and color time them and, and so this all, all the sorts of and make them look brand new. Uh, they would call John and I in to watch the prints of those to make sure you know that it was that there weren't any glaring mistakes. The first one we went to, of course, was Dr. No. And seeing the the Lowry version of that on a big screen, it was just freaking amazing, you know. Um, like uh, just the close-ups of Sean Connery sitting in M's office, you could almost count the threads in his necktie. It was so clear, you know. Wow. But it was a little too clear because things like the shot of London where you could really see the hands on the clock, you could tell it wasn't the time to say it is in the film. Later on, when they get to Dr. No's Island, they I guess it shot that scene in daylight and color-timed it to be more dark. Well, mm. they had it just as it was filmed, and you can see a guy walking on this deserted beachfront, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you can't see when you time the colors. So, you know, that's why they had us there, is to give them notes on things like that. And then um, with the the later Bonds, they didn't call us in to consult on it. And when I finally saw the quote-unquote restored DVD of For Your Eyes Only, I was a little upset, because there's a sequence in For Your Eyes Only uh, where he kicks the car over the cliff. And that begins with a nighttime raid on a port. And then Bond, you know, Locke drives off in the car and Bond runs up to the top of the hill through these catacombs, kind of, and then shoots him and kicks the car over. As he's running up through the catacombs, you can see they're doing kind of gradual changes of light as though the sun is coming up. So it's daylight when he gets to the top. But the way they've color timed it for the DVDs now is as if the entire scene plays out at night. Mm. So you don't get nearly as much of the detail you got seeing it in a cinema screen, you know, in, the, in the 1982 yeah. or, or three or whenever that was. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have it doesn't look the same now as it did then seeing it in the theater. And, you know, some of the things, too, like uh, for years watching Goldfinger, when they'd cut to uh, the plane that Pussy Galore is flying and Bond wakes up on. For years, you could see the wires holding that up. You know, and yeah, that's one of the that. things they kind of brush out with the with the Lowry transfers. You know, they wiped out a lot of the those sorts of details. You know, and I think their reasoning was that had the filmmakers had that technology back then, they would have wanted to do that too. But right. for for me, it kind of loses a little bit of its charm when you erase all that. So yeah, that that makes that makes sense because I had heard there were 
they they've done the 4K transfers, and then I heard somebody saying that 8K was next, and I just I I wonder sometimes how much how much the human eye can really take in for a start, and then these craftsmen who worked so hard to know exactly how to shoot something and what's going to show and what's not going to show, all that kind of goes out the window when you go back to to try to find every piece of information contained on the on the negative. Yeah, and I just have to say it was really eye-opening to me just how much information a film frame picked up, you know. Yeah. Because I guess back in the day, if you're watching these films in the theater, you know, for me, seeing Spy Who Loved Me in Huntsville, Alabama in 1977, you know, it's it's a print that's uh, been around the country a few times. So it's kind of scratched. It's got little bits missing here and there where they've, you know, had to where it got tangled in the projector and it cut a bit out. Uh, and the, pro the projection itself isn't, wasn't nearly as bright as they are in theaters now. So you're kind of wa watching a kind of murky image on a screen anyway. So, yeah. so yeah, I think what audiences are used to now compared to what we're used to getting in our homes these days, it's a world of difference. Yeah. There's always a perverse joy in going to the drive-in to see the latest big Hollywood gigantic blockbuster. And then it's being shown outdoors on a, painted square piece of wood with yeah. the bulb, bulb turned down to low to save power. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. The, the the worst was when I went to the Cinerama Dome to see a double feature of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And me and a lot of my other Bond friends, you know, we go and we want to see, you know, the Bond movie in widescreen at the Cinerama Dome. And they were showing a pan and scan version of that movie. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah. That's terrible. So we all got up, left That's in disgust, amazing. went back to one of my friend's apartments and put on, I think at that time, it was the VHS that was widescreen. You know? so. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I did. I had no idea there was there would have even been a pan and scan print that had been physically struck. I guess they, they needed I guess they needed that for television i don't know yeah i think that's probably what happened is they requested the print and the studio sent over the tv print by mistake or something you know but it was it was not good but not the one that was chopped up and reordered like the way that i first not saw. not that one no which i remember <laughs> seeing that when it was broadcast if, if you guys bring me on to talk about that movie y'all <laughs> can reminisce about that if we get there it's a date if we get that far that would be great i only saw one film ever at the cinerama dome and it mm -hmm. was Iron Man. So I was in oh. L.A. at the time, and I thought, oh, well, I want to go see a big you know, blockbuster on this giant screen in the Cinerama Dome. And it was fine, except when it's not made, made to be projected that way, there's some interesting yeah. choices. And there's that famous shot, you know, it was kind of the money shot in the trailer where he shoots some missiles at a tank and then turns around and walks away and it blows up behind him. It was like the right. tank was like on my left side and he was on my right side. It was like the Cinerama Dome was a really strange experience for me. I was like, I think it's got to be 2001 or something. I think you really got to see the right movie in here. To... Well, you have to see a movie shot in Cinerama, exactly. really, which was done with three cameras where they kind of stitched the images together as they projected, you know. And when you see, I've watched uh, how, um how to West was one recently, mm -hmm. which was a Cinerama movie, yeah. which they presented in that format. And you can see it gets a little, gets a little wider on the edges than in the middle and where the image is stitched together. It's, it's just really funky. It's almost, almost makes you seasick watching it. Yeah. You, you know? can see the seams in that movie from time to time. I, I've, I've yeah, noticed, well, yeah. Throughout pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so you just ignore them after a while. 
So yeah, we got Bond heads into Money Penny's office here after talking to uh, M and Q, right into the flirting. Like just not even not even a little warm up to it. He just goes right into it, doesn't he? You guys may have covered this in Doctor No, but there was a um, when they were shooting Doctor No, uh, Connery and uh, Lois Maxwell decided that there would be a backstory to Bond and Money Penny. You know where they went away and had a romantic weekend before he became a double O officer. So that's how they're playing this scene is, 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 you know, a couple who had had some fun in the past and are still flirting with each other. Has anybody ever thought to do a, like a one act, just a one act play about that weekend. That would be a little, a little bit tragic in the end, right? Like they have to begin their careers that we know that we see them living later, but anyway, sorry. Well, I, I, I kind of, Maybe it's because of the age I am now. I see the other side of that. You do the one act of Bond and Money Penny now that he's retired and um, she's no longer in the service, and then the older couple, you know, and trying to fit into normal life after all that excitement. So, hmm. but it's it's interesting how much better this works as a kind of romantic continuity than the Sylvia Trench stuff. Like, like it's it's so there's something that's so comforting and. Uh, I can see why audiences responded to it the way that they did. I, I think maybe some of that comes from the just just that we're hearing the actors' actual voices recorded on the set at the time they're doing the performance. <laughs> you know, whereas in the Sylvia Trench scenes, it's not um, the actress's real voice, and Connery's voice I think was recorded afterwards too. It was very common back then with European productions and films shot in Mexico and South America. If you're shooting outside, shoot them silent and then bring the actors in to do the voices later. Right. Yeah. And I kind of get the feeling that's what happened with, with that seaside scene there in From Russia With Love. They weren't recording sound on the day. They did it afterwards and bring in Nikki Vandersil to, to revoice Eunice Gason. Um, but that was also, you know, Terrence Young's wanted that to be his sort of running gag in the films is that every movie would start off with Bond trying to get together with with Sylvia Trench, and then he gets called away on a mission. But once they brought in Guy Hamilton for the next film, he said, ah, screw that. We're not doing yeah. that. So. And I agree with Guy Hamilton. I I think one of the things that works with Moneypenny so well is that it's natural. There's, there's a She has a natural purpose within the film outside of... Uh, Outside of just being a, a, a focus of flirtation for Bond, that's just a that's just a byproduct of her place in the film, where the where the uh, Sylvia Trench scene in this film at least feels very it feels like they're trying to wedge in a bit. It's like okay, we're going to get this bit in here, and you already feel it. In the last movie, it felt well, it being the first movie, it was setting a trend and not following up on it. But maybe it was in, in this one. It was like we got to try to get the scene. What let's get him in. Let's get her in and let's get this bit that we've decided to do. And it doesn't feel natural to me. Yeah, the first one had more of a purpose because it was showing Bond's you know, animal magnetism as, as a seducer. Right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And her willingness to be seduced and be part of that. You know? So it's, it's that old thing of um, you know, every sitcom writer knows if you have characters in the sitcom who have a sexual attraction, people are going to keep watching until they actually get together. Right. And, you know, at that point, it becomes boring. And, and in this case, it kind of feels, you know, that you talk about the animal magnetism and the sort of battle of 
of uh, between the two of well not battle isn't the right word but the back and forth between them in the first film this one it feels like they've been married for a while or something it's like it's like oh you're always ruining our weekends with work it's like wait they're already jumped to this <laughs> like it's maybe yeah yeah if they continued it i just see you know you get to goldfinger or thunderball and, and bond gets his mission like you know and, and he's like oh thank god now i get to go <laughs> yeah he, he's in the he's in the easy chair with the beer yeah Watching TV and it's yeah. Off to work, hon. See you in a few months. Yeah. I understand that's Terrence Young's hand that signs the photograph of Tanya. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things. Insert shot at the end of the shoot, you know. But um, there, one of the things I love about that is the way as he's signing from Russia at the top, the John Barry music kicks in, and I feel like. You there. You absolutely cannot overestimate the contribution of John Barry to those first seven Bond films. You know, and really beginning with From Russia with Love, where where he's in charge of doing it all. Because you know, all of those films, he gives each one a little slightly different sound, and yet they all have a very identifiable James Bond sound. Yeah, this and this this arrangement really swings. It's a it's a big improvement over Doctor No. Everything from the bongo drums to just the fact that it's just got this brassy swing to it that that the first one didn't have is really nice. Well, and a freaking gong in the theme, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you absolutely. That. Bring it in. That's that's great. Oh, getting, sticking with the the money penny scene here. Um, you know, when Bond says once more unto the breach, uh, that's from Henry V by Shakespeare. Where Henry's rallying his troops and a breach is, you know, a gap in a wall, you know, so it's yeah. once more into the breach, get through the gap and take on the enemy here. And Connery had, was no uh, no stranger to Shakespeare. He'd been in a, a series called The Age of Kings that the BBC did in the 1960s. He didn't do Henry V, but he was Hotspur in Henry IV. Uh, and that one also featured uh, Julian Glover's The Earl of Westmoreland. And Julian Glover, of course, would go on to be the villain in, in The Fear Eyes Only in 1981. So Connery was also in a Canadian production of Macbeth, uh, I think in 1960, 61, 61 he did that. So again, Connery had some familiarity with Shakespeare. And you would think of all the Shakespeare plays, Macbeth is the one he'd be absolutely perfect for since he's Scottish. Yeah, that would have been great to see. He he was probably an, he was a, probably an amazing Macbeth. I mean, all force and power would have been something. Yeah, I'd like to see it. I, I know The Age of Kings came out on DVD some years ago, but uh, the Macbeth, unfortunately, BBC and CBC sort of have a long history of recording over their old videotapes, yeah. you know, and reusing them. So. John, do you have anything else about the Money Penny Office before we jump on the Pan Am plane? Not really. I think, I mean, I like, you know, you mentioned the the musical cue. There's something about him writing on this on this photo. It kind of goes on. It kind of goes on for a little bit. It's like a man writing something. He stops. He starts writing, and I'm glad. It's nice that they put the cue in right in the middle. Like you're getting it. Yeah. Because it, I get this like slight tinge of tedium right as that comes in. It's like a perfectly placed. That's a Peter Hunt. That's got to be a Peter Hunt. Uh, uh, choice there, where it's like it's just getting tedious watching a man write this down. And it comes right in and you're like, okay, we're in the Bond movie now. And it just accelerates you right, into the yeah. next sequence. Yeah, the music carries you right into that, that airport landing scene, which is almost identical to... It's so almost identical to Dr. No that I actually went back to watch the airport landing sequence in Dr. No to see if they used the same one. 
It, but no, they reshot it. Thank goodness. It is so much the same that when I was watching this clip earlier today, I, I for one microsecond said, am I watching an old clip from last season? Uh, I really did for yeah, well, a second. It's, it's, that airport's so similar. Yeah, that's why I had to go and check them. I mean, it... it it does look like they, when they did their location shooting, they shot an airport in Turkey, you know, because it's a little bigger. There are more people there. It's a different background with the plane coming in. But it's, a, it's again, it's a, they must have had some deal with Pan Am, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to, to cart them around yeah, for free. Young said in some interview that that shot of the plane coming in to land, that there was a white building that you could see in the on the horizon, and that was where he had stayed and said that he had moved into that building after leaving the hotel because he wanted to have some privacy, but then he said everybody wound up also moving to that place. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so you get the sense that he's invested in his second unit shots and knows what it, knows knows everything in those in those shots. And I guess they must have gone up into the control tower as well and and redone that shot. Yeah, and it's uh, would have taken some doing because it's a, some kind of a high angle shot. So I don't know if there was a little cat bulk they could stand on to get the shot or what, but, um, but it, it's, it's very effective. It works very well, but this was also a time when for the average person, air travel was still something really exotic and something most people had never done. So I think that's why in these films, you see the process of air travel of getting from one place to another, you know, whereas later on they would just, cut and suddenly we're in a new location you know yeah and there seems to be a real confidence in just trying to refollow the steps of dr no and the arrival and of course the, they're going to re rejig some of the aspects good guys good guys will be driving the show the car rather than a bad guy and a bad guy will be surveilling from a car but it really does feel almost identical to the dr no entrance to the airport with the exception of the um passwords that are exchanged between one of Karim Bay's sons and Bond. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities, but I think this scene, it seems almost like something you could do without, but it really establishes a lot, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, because it's the first link he has with, with Karim Bay through his son. Uh, it establishes, of course, that we're in Turkey now. You get um, uh, the Bulgard driver who's following them, you know, uh, and and that wonderful shot of um, Robert Shaw watching from afar, you know, uh, nibbling on the thumb of his black glove. <laughs> and I think Shaw is just an amazing presence throughout this film, being silent up until the point he starts impersonating Captain Nash. You know, uh, he's, he's just this menacing presence always in the background. We uh, were saying last week that because the first time I saw the movie, it was on television and I couldn't see Robert Shaw on the left side of the frame because of the pan and scan and john had said well when would we start tracking red grant and so i guess for young mitch watching it on tv it would be this shot of him in the car and we see his face in the reflection of the of the side view mirror and that's when we know red grant is on the trail right i mean we've already had that that introduction to him earlier on when rosa Klebb punches him in the stomach right uh, but right. this is where we see the mission starting and and this is one of the things i find interesting about this too that correlates with the novel is that bond isn't really in charge of the narrative in this film he's a pawn in a larger narrative you know? mm -hmm. which which is unusual but then in the end 
turns it around and, and gets the better of everybody. I, I love the, the recognition code too. I mean, among, among Bond fanatics like myself for years, that's just one of the things we would do whenever you see one of your friends out in public, it's like, you know, do you have a match? <laughs> I use a lighter. So. We've also got some um, process work here again, which again reminds us of Dr. No, maybe not in the, not in the best way. It's an interesting combination because you've got the, obviously the location shots of the, the two vehicles driving through various areas of uh, Istanbul. Uh, and then we cut to Connery in the back of the car in the process shot, you know, and, and all that, which, you know, those, those always look a little funky in these older movies. But what, again, makes this work for me is the John Barry music when you got just that kind of low hum of the bongos going throughout this tailing yeah. scene, you know. It really gives it a... a it's almost like a, a heartbeat underneath the scene, you know, helps give it some pace because otherwise it'd be kind of a dull shot of cars driving around Istanbul. But put the John Barry music in there and it's like, ooh, this is exciting. Young says the British Embassy loaned him a couple of Rolls Royces that they used for these these second unit shots of driving through the city, which I thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were always pretty good about pulling strings to get things done and, um, you know, there's... When you get to Diamonds Are Forever, a lot of stories about Cubby Broccoli having to call in some favors. Yeah, right, with Howard Hughes. Right. right. <laughs> well, and also with beginning, I think, with Goldfinger might have been the first one, where you have uh, Colonel Rushon, Rushon getting involved from the Air Force. It's like, hey, this is a great way for us to show off our, you know, all of our new Air Force machinery. Yeah, so. yeah that, which is now sort of typical. Like, that happens all the time now, and the Bond films seem to be ahead of it on that one. Yeah, bond, bond films and everything else these days, you know, they get cooperation from the military and various agencies. I, I noticed that uh, if you look quickly, when we when we finally see the actors crossing the street, uh, in the back behind them, there are big crowds of people watching, which I guess was an issue all through the making of this movie. They had lots of lots of crowds forming to, to watch the, the filming. This one and many others later, it's like uh, the the car coming out of the alley and diamonds are forever, you know, and two wheels. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, just tons yeah. of people on the sidewalk just, ooh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I, this is hopping hopping ahead in your guy's timeline, but there's a story of uh, Cameron Chung getting uh, the, one of the stuntmen to hang from a bridge or something like that to attract a crowd so they could get the shots he needed. I, I do want to say that like the scene at the caravan stop in the previous um, minutes where Tanya goes to meet Rosa Klebb, the lighting in this bazaar is gorgeous. It's, you know, it's still hard location Hollywood light, but it has it has these really great um, deep shadows and it's it's really gorgeous. I mean, Ted Moore was an amazing cinematographer on location. Yeah, I mean, Ted Moore ended up winning Academy Award, I think, for A Man for All Seasons. Uh, but, but yeah, he was, he, you know, his his style of shooting, kind of uh, hard lighting, very vibrant colors and all that, is another thing that kind of adds to the whole feel of these early Bond films. So, so again, I think it's a combination of people who work over several of these movies, Ted Moore, Ken Adam, John Barry. That's what makes a Bond film a Bond film. It's the contribution of all these artists bringing the best of their talents to it. And, yeah, um, I think you're right. And one of the things that uh, I found interesting um, when we were doing the interviews for the DVDs is particularly with these first half dozen films or so, how many of the people who worked on them were World War II veterans, 
and how many of those had worked in special services or, you know, kind of spy type operations in the war. So they're bringing a, a worldview to this that your average person wouldn't have had. It's, you know, so it's, uh, so I think that adds a lot to it as well. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing to that. Um, in those sort of process shots of Connery talking to the to Karim's son, the driver, uh, I I really again enjoy Connery's performance in this movie. You know, just looking at his his facial expressions as he's talking to this guy. You know, I suppose it's customary to have people telling you, and the way the driver just tosses off, "Oh yes, today it's Citroen H three four on duty." The, you know, the genuine look of surprise on Bond's face of like. Not only is it customary, but he knows the guy, knows his, his license plate number, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's it's just a lot of little touches like that in this movie, I think, make it kind of rise above the pack for me. We should always give Bond a little something to discover upon reaching a new world, so to speak, uh, where he shouldn't be completely on top of everything that's happening here. He needs to be something new and different that... Okay, the lay of the land here. I need to. Uh, I need to get a little grasp of it, and it's a little bit different than I'm used to. And we get a lot of that from as the movie goes forward. I mean, that's part of Karen Bay's entire function as a character, is in a way, is to keep sort of informing Bond of how different things are here and all the rules of the of the area. So it's a good, nice little note for the drive over to get us into. Yeah, that. and I think I think it's something we get more in those early films than we do much later on. Um, uh, one of the things I was doing with the DVDs at a certain point, we were looking for deleted scenes. So I would go through the scripts, see if there were scenes in the script that weren't in the movie. And if they were, then I'd look at the call sheets to see if they actually shot them. And one of the things that stood out to me, for instance, in Moonraker, uh, in the script, uh, Holly Goodhead has a whole big long description of what the space shuttle is and how it works and so on. In the movie, she begins it Bond finishes it, you know, oh, it's a space shuttle, and Bond cuts in, you know, goes into Earth orbit and returns like an airplane, you know. And I thought, okay, so that's a choice they made on set. I don't know if it was Lewis Gilbert or Roger Moore or whomever, that Bond needs to always be in charge and be the expert. You don't always get that in these early Bond films. As you say, sometimes Bond has to discover what he's getting into. And I, for me, that adds to the film. I was just going to say, I wonder when that transition starts to happen because it does as you were saying that it occurs to me the the sake scene in you only live twice where he knows every damn thing about sake there is to know and that's i love you only live twice but it's always been one of the moments in the movie where i'm kind of like yeah this is too much like that I, I don't need bond to know everything about sake that's a little strange to me and I, I would rather him discover or i would rather bond think he knows everything about something and get one up a little bit or something. I don't know. That's just me, maybe. But uh, it starts to get the, where Bond becomes too super, too much of a superhero, both physically and like with his sophistication. Yeah, I I think uh, Thunderball is probably the real jump to shark film with that for me because um, again in in Goldfinger he has this thing where he's figured out how many men, how long it'll take to move the gold, all this sort of stuff. You know, which is which is fun. But I think because of that scene, there was a lot of critical response in the press and in the reviews of the film and so on about, oh, he's a Superman and he knows everything. So that when you get to Thunderball, you have, you know, those kind of mocking lines coming from Fiona Volpe about, 
you know, oh, James Bond only has to make love to a woman and, you know, she hears siren singing. So I, I think that's the one where they really started leaning real heavily into the Bond as Ultraman mm -hmm. kind of concept. Well, when we get to Carambe's office back on the Pinewood set, uh, I just wanted to point out that this continues my theory that this movie is about sex more than anything else. And so the first thing we see in the office is this beautiful girl adjusting her clothes coming out of Karen Bay's office. And it just feels like that there is more, on average, sex per minute in this than even some of the later films. And not just with Bond, yeah. Yeah, just an, just an aura of sex everywhere. It's rather like a Matt Helm movie in that regard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but With a more discreet camera, thank God. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's one of the things you, you could not make this movie today, I don't think, you know, because of that, that kind of, um, you know, I mean, let's face it, Karen Bay is someone who's harassing his young female employees and, and having multiple children with them, yep. <laughs> you know, because he's got, what, 50 sons or something, you know. And I think, you know, we need to need to point out to Najari Jean, who plays Karim's girl, turns up in Goldfinger, the next film, as Bonita in the in the pre credit sequence. The the woman who, who Bond sees the uh, reflection of the killer in her the, the human shield. Her, the iris of her eye. Right. So she gets to belly dance in the next movie, not in this one. Right. And and here too we're introduced to Pedro Armanderes. And it wasn't until recent years that I've realized what a popular actor he was in the 1950s, you know, because especially in, you know, John Ford movies, um, but also just, you know, adventure films in, in European films and so on. You know, he's a, a Mexican born actor who just had a good presence on screen. And, uh, you know, he'd been in three Godfathers co-starring with John Wayne. And uh, what was the one? There was an adventure movie I'd seen not too long ago. But anyway, throughout the 1950s, he's, he's, he he was almost like a Gene Hackman was in the nineties. He's turning up in like every third movie that gets made, you know. Oh, he's with the he's co-stars with Roger Moore and Dion with Lana Turner. Yeah, you know? <laughs> so so he was a very well-known actor, very well regarded. Uh, and uh, as we know, this was his final film because during the production he discovered he had cancer. Yeah, in fact, they were going to do more. Uh, like the Gypsy Camp scene with him was going to be shot on location in Istanbul. But once it became uh, clear how ill he was and how ill he was getting, they kind of shifted their schedule around a little bit and did all the, the carom scenes on the back lot of Pinewood, you know, including recreating the gypsy camp. And Young credits John Ford for pointing out the possibility of Amandara's playing this part and that uh, then Young says he even said that he would get $100,000 or got $100,000 on the last Ford picture uh, in the hopes of being able to get a higher fee for Pedro on this movie so that his family would have some money. I hope it's a true story, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I've, I'll, yeah. You never know with Terrence Young stories. They're always, they're always, um, he, you always wonder. He they're and, great stories, though. Yeah, he and Orson Welles. It's wonderful stories, but you have to fact check them, you know. Uh, but, but uh, I don't doubt that John Ford might have suggested Pedro Armendariz, and I hope that they paid him some extra. But they shot all of his stuff in three weeks, I guess, and they even uh, they doubled him for some long shots, and and apparently some of the reverses they didn't even shoot until after he'd left the production. Yeah, uh, which again, not an uncommon thing with movies in general, but certainly in that case, they had no no choice, you know. 
and and unfortunately it's you know the cancer that uh, that did a man he thinks he caught while filming the unconquered you know which is the the notorious movie from that was filmed at the uh nuclear facility or a nu nuclear test site in the utah desert which you know john wayne also and and um susan hayward i think all all ended up getting cancer and they as, as well as a lot of people who worked on that film Oh, talking about the doubling, one of my notes is that Taron Chong claims that he's actually doubling um, Armanderas for some of those reverse shots and long shots. Huh, that's interesting. Could be, I guess. But like you said, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, the, the other thing is I noticed that uh, in the book, when I was reading a little bit about the backstory of this character, it really reminded me of La Strada, the Fellini movie, a, a, you know, where Anthony Quinn plays this circus performer strong man and i wondered whether fleming had yeah. seen Lestrada. i did the math and he could have seen Lestrada before he wrote the book so maybe there was some influence there I don't it's know. possible yeah the the bending bars and breaking chains with his teeth line yeah and and he's described as having blue eyes which in the book which i think is also really interesting i, I you know here's this turkish character and it's like Fleming is going out of his way on one hand to do whatever he can to anglicize the guy. And so it's a really it's it's it's, it's Fleming up to his up to his, you know, best colonialist. Tricks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I it's been a long time since I read any of the novels. I um, uh, you know, he always said he kind of wrote them for men who were traveling on train trips and airplanes and so on. And that's how I read a lot of them when I was at USC and I would fly back to Alabama to see my family. Usually I'd take one of the Bond books with me and read it on the plane and they were just about the right length for a four-hour flight, <laughs> you know, to, to read the yeah. whole thing. Um, I thought they were very good novels at the time. Looking back at them from today's perspective, you can definitely see the colonialist attitude that Fleming had, which... Uh, from today's perspective, doesn't always work to the betterment of those stories. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and the same with his sexist attitude where he, I think it's in this scene in the book where he tells the story about uh, uh, finding a woman and uh, chaining her under her his table and feeding her table strap, scraps until he tamed her. And then she didn't want to leave when he unchained her. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, that's Stockholm syndrome, I guess we call it. Now. If you, I guess uh, so. That's right. <laughs> I mean, if uh, Andrew Lysett did a really wonderful biography of Fleming some years ago, and and uh, you know, when you read that, one of the things that comes to is that Fleming had a kind of sadomasochistic relationship with his wife. You know, so so I think I think Fleming was into some kinky stuff. <laughs> so. And and that comes into play in some of the Bond movies. Yeah, it does. And and um, so then it's just up to the filmmakers to clean it up. But they know it's there as subtext, so they can do all sorts of interesting things with that, which, you know, in, in a way is, is to their advantage. Yeah, and certainly as the series progresses, the Bond of the movies, I think, becomes very different than the Bond of the novels. And, and with every actor who comes in to play the role, they're bringing a great deal of their persona into it, you know. Uh, which is one of the things that's kind of interesting watching Connery is, you know, the role hadn't been done before except for that TV movie where, he, where Bond was an American um, or, or wasn't really a movie, an episode of an anthology series. But, um, yeah, I mean, Connery's got to kind of develop what the screen persona of Bond will be. And in Dr. No, he's he's still figuring it out, it seems to me. And with From Russia With Love, he seems like that's where it all clicked. 
and then it really clicks with Goldfinger after he's worked with Hitchcock and has more confidence as an actor and feels more at ease, you know. Did he ever cop to that, or is that is that speculation? It's speculation on my part. And it, it, all, it also seems to me that it took Roger Moore three films to really click into the role, you know, because I think Spy Who Loved Me is where his bond really is fully formed, more so than yeah. in, in Live and Let Die, he's basically playing a Connery bond. And, right. and Man with the Golden Gun, it's a little bit of both, but that scene where he's slapping around Andre Anders is just uncomfortable, you know, yeah, on, on a lot of so levels. But, yeah, and it's obvious he didn't feel yeah. comfortable doing it as he's filming right. it, you know. Yeah, he had to, he had to find that, that ability to both the humor and just this kind of way that Roger Moore glides through everything, you know, when he's at his best. And, and he's, no, he's not doing a lot of gliding in, in those first two uh, Guy Hamilton Bond films. Yeah, I mean, Roger Moore's the definition of un unflappable, but with Connery's Bond, you get much more of a sense of danger about this guy, that that he is someone who without without hesitation could just knife you under the table and walk away, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Do you guys know what this coffee order is all about? Like, the, did you just think of it as a normal coffee order? Do you know what, what it is? the specifics are behind ordering a coffee medium sweet as they do here. No, but I bet you do because you're the coffee I, guy. I do know. I just didn't know if it was like well known that this is a, they're in Turkey. They're specifically ordering Turkish coffee, which is a very different brewing process than the coffee we're used to. So they're not telling the guy to throw a lump of sugar in their cup of Folgers. It's a brewing process, which requires, you know, putting grounds into a small, uh, you've seen it before. It's on a long handle and it's a, 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 a blinking on the word for it it almost looks like there's a little ceramic shot glass at the end of it and then you add the water to that and then pour it one cup at a time into something it's a little larger than an espresso cup but specifically you got to tell them the sweetness level before they brew it because you cannot add sugar afterwards it's a major faux pas uh they put the sugar in with the coffee and brew it together sort of like they do in cuba as well but I just, I was curious if people, I remember hearing this and going, I have no idea. Why are they ordering medium sweet? Is it just something they did in the early 60s? And then I thought, oh, they're in Turkey. This must have something to do with Turkish coffee, which I've never brewed. But uh, so I did a little research on that. But anyway, it's not just a weird coffee order. <laughs> no, it's really fascinating. And it's to, I, it's been a long time since I read the novel and I didn't go back and recheck it for this, which I probably should have. But it may be in the novel because yeah. certainly that's the kind of detail Fleming would have been all over because he, you know, he spends pages sometimes describing what Bond's ordering for lunch. You know, I was going to say I did think about that because I know when I've traveled uh, to Europe, you know, as an American, we, you know, what we think is a strong coffee would be just just coffee to the Europeans. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember getting I think coffee in Belgium and it's just a little, you know, a little. I don't know, like shot of coffee, and I'm like, that's not much. And I drink it, and boy, I was buzzed the whole day. It's really strong. A very concentrated <laughs> version yeah. of coffee, and it hits you quicker because it's like you're drinking a whole cup of coffee in a sh in a one gulp, you know. But yeah, a, uh, yeah. Bond has that other coffee order. Is it Doctor No that he orders the coffee extra black? Is that I'm trying to remember. He calls the room service and orders a pot of coffee extra black. Does he order coffee in this film as Maybe well? When this he orders one that he does. He, does. he does. He orders coffee and yogurt. That's um, it. Right. I, coffee very black. Up. He says, I th yeah, yeah, very so. black, which uh, 
That's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of a weird thing to say. It's like, okay, do you want French roast or? <laughs> I, maybe he needed that extra caffeine jolt to to uh, get ready for Tatiana Romanova. <laughs> oh, that <just> sounds. <laughs> maybe so. Uh, I did notice that we have a portrait of Churchill on Ali Karimbe's desk, I, and so I seem a, to re- a little bit more to England. I seem to recall that maybe from the novel. But I'm not sure. I'd have, again, I'd have to go back and check. Uh, you may be right. You may be right. I think he does speak um, admiringly. positively about admiringly about Churchill at some point. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so much so to put a picture on his desk. That's real. Yeah. <laughs> That's where your wife's picture goes. That's very strange. It's but he has no. He has no wife. He's right. had you know multiple, multiple, multiple girlfriends that he's had a, right. an amazing amount of sons with. One wonders what he does with his daughters, but he's had a lot of sons. You know? He probably looks at his um, desk and goes, you know, I should have a picture of a wife here, but I don't have a wife. And I have 50 children, so I can't possibly get them all on the desk. <laughs> Who's the next person I revere the most? Winston Churchill. Let's. Yeah, I really like that Churchill guy. And, you know, Churchill was still alive at this time, too. So yeah. there's that. Or it might it's have... an old Churchill. It's not a young Churchill mm-hmm. picture that he has on his Maybe desk. Maybe it's from of... Churchill. Yeah, maybe it he, uh, maybe, maybe it's autograph. We just can't see the autograph at the bottom. <laughs> it might have been right around the time of Churchill's death, to come to think of it. So, but, um, but yeah, the other thing that struck me about it is with all these older films is the you know a vast amount of cigarette smoking in it. Your first thing Karim does is offer Bond a cigarette, and I thought, well, here Bond's getting an actual Turkish cigarette. In the novels, as I recall, he smoked a. Turkish blend of Moreland cigarettes right. that had the three gold bands on the on the cigarette. So yeah, I'm thinking, well, here he's getting the the real thing. So it may be like the coffee, where it's a much stronger, unfiltered cigarette or something. You know. Yeah, but, and I think he takes it right. I think he, he does. takes the cigarette from Bay versus because the, there are other other instances in the Bond films where he's offered a cigarette and he prefers his own. So yeah, he he's he's doing it probably both for. For political reasons and because uh, he likes Turkish cigarettes, and I guess it shows trust that you trust that Cameron yeah. Bay is not going to drug him with a cigarette. You know, <laughs> I mean, this really is one of the great alliances in the Bond films. This is is uh, and Columbo is really great in uh, For Your Eyes Only, but I don't know. This guy kind of takes it. He's like my I think my favorite Bond ally. I think it works better for this one, uh, just because again. Karim is away another M figure, another another adult figure. And I, like I say, I always kind of see Bond as the overgrown adolescent, you know. So here's another guy who's like, no, no, this tells me something's, something smells, you know, who's, who's, who's kind of being the, the adult in the room. Uh, and it might have worked that way with Columbo and Bond, except that they look the same age. <laughs> you know? Right, so. right, and and I think we also had to spend some time wondering whether Columbo was a good guy or a bad guy. Yeah, and there's no doubt about about this guy being a a, a loyal ally and guide and and friend through all of this. Yeah, and there's just again the presence of Pedro Armendariz. The moment he comes on screen, he's just this genial, likable, lovable bear of a guy. You know, you just can't help but. And everybody loved him. You know, from what I re- have read. Um, it's uh, particularly, I guess, Emilio Fernandez, the the sort of notorious uh, Mexican director who shows up in a couple of Peckinpah movies and was, you know, was no pussycat. And apparently he really liked having Pedro around. Yeah. And of course, his son shows up in License to Kill. 
So, yeah, yeah, so, which is so, nice. Mm-hmm. John, unless you do, you have anything else for these for this so. scene? I'm all out of notes. Well, I think that brings us to the end, then. Yeah, I'm out of notes. Out of notes as well. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. This has been great. Where can are you on social media? Can you want to plug anything? What where where can people find you if if they're looking for you? You know, I do have a website, brucesibley.com, that I use mostly to promote my books, but I haven't written one for several years now because life just got busy. Um, I am currently uh, producing a, a streaming series that should be available on Amazon and, and Hulu and Tubi, places like that, in the fall, uh, called The Miracle Show. That's uh, uh, It's basically uh, um, uplifting, feel-good stories about people who've overcome hardships or close close encounters and things and so on just events that happen in their life that are that they've survived and and it it's uh just meant to be an uplifting feel-good show so great excellent we will we will look forward to that in the fall john do you want to take us out if you're not already following us on twitter follow us there at 007 by 7 podcast or Come over to our uh, Facebook page and check us out over there. Have uh, Join the conversation. Uh, we get some nice comments. We get some cool, some people come up with some cool behind-the-scenes stuff that they add over there uh, that we like uh, to share with everyone. And uh, also we have a Patreon. It's at patreon.com forward slash alien minute where we're doing our commentaries and our quadfecta episodes and other whatever we decide to do. Once a month we do a show for you uh, for only two bucks a month. So... Come over and subscribe to that and get some extra content over there. Thanks again, Bruce, for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on Goldfinger, maybe. You'll come come back. I'll come back anytime. Yeah, this is this was a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you guys inviting me. So thank you, John and Mitch. Thank you.